Chris Joe Watson. I've been in Oxford for about 15 years. I moved here a week before 9-11, so it's very memorable when I came here. But I've only been in OCC for a few years, and it's a privilege to be invited to speak again. Um, as Andy says, today we're looking at this series about abundant life, and today's theme is life in God's power. Life in God's power. Um, and I looked up the word abundant. I was like, what does that actually mean? <laughs> And what I found in the dictionary was this wonderful definition. It means present in great quantity, more than adequate, over-sufficient, and abounding. And I thought, I want that in my life. <laughs> and then I was thinking, where have I seen that through demonstrations of God's power? So I thought I'd share, right at the outset, a couple of testimonies uh, to inspire faith. <laughs> so as Andy said... I work for Tier Fund. I lead quite a large team at Tier Fund, and I travel maybe three, four, five times in a year. And I have recently been in Bolivia. Last month, I was in Bolivia in, Cent in South America. And Bolivia, the part where I was, has been experiencing quite a lot of drought. And they haven't had rain when they should have had rain, and they haven't had it for quite a long time because of climate change. And I was taken to this place where these two rivers meet, and they were forming this convergence of a river, and it was easily as wide as the River Thames is in London, and yet it was completely dry. And I was like, Lord, this is not enough. This is not good enough. And I stood there, and I held my hands out, and I said, in the name of Jesus, send rain on this land, but don't send it all at once because they'll get a flood. And, and, and I prayed in a way that I felt God just give me huge faith to pray for his power to come, and later that day, it rained for the first time in eight months. And I felt unbelievably humbled. It, rained, it actually rained every day for the 10 days that we were in that community. And then another story, this time from West Africa. This is not one that I have experienced, but I heard it secondhand. Where the Ebola disease hit Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. And Tear Fund heard a testimony where a pastor was burying his wife and the body bag moved. And they realized that actually they had been praying for her to live and she had lived. And they undid the body bag and she came out alive from that grave. That is what it's like to live in God's power. And Jesus says in John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and life in abundance. I have come that you might have life in abundance. And in this series so far through Romans, we've been looking at what it means to live abundantly in our identity, in our community, in our rest, in our relationships. And today it's about in God's power. So, I don't know about you, but that, that scenario I've just described is not really the norm. Maria, do you want to come up so that you're, you're ready in a minute? Um, I'm going to start by explaining a story Back in the summer, I was in Northern Ireland visiting friends, and unfortunately, the hire car I was using broke down. And I went to phone the AA to call, call them to come and rescue me, and unfortunately, my phone battery was almost dead. And I was like, oh my goodness, and I didn't have my charger with me. And so I, fortunately, God by his grace, gave me enough battery to call the AA, and they found me, and they rescued me. And the car was fixed. But it made me think... When we're talking about living life in God's power, we are too often like the phone without the charger. We're too often in that place where God is saying, you're not spending enough time with me regularly to be fully charged so that when I need to use you, I can put my power through you to reach other people. 
too often we are like that phone without the charger. So this image is going to keep coming up through the slides, and that's the reason. So I'd like to suggest that we start with the reading. And I've asked Maria to come and read this passage from Romans 8, verse 31, because this is the bit we're going to look at. Romans 8, verse 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you. Don't need that. If you've got your Bibles, I suggest you keep them open so that you can kind of follow where I'm going. Um, For lots of us, that passage is really familiar, and it's also incredibly reassuring and incredibly encouraging. And Paul starts off in verse 31. He says, What then shall we say in response to these things? This is the first of seven questions that follow in that passage. And in the scripture, seven is the number of completion and perfection. So what he's trying to do is completely and perfectly refute any objection to the message of salvation. So when he's saying, what then shall we say to these things? These things are the previous sections of Romans. When he has talked about the fact that God has given us salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection. As Rod said earlier, Jesus has paid the price. And the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in us, that God has made us his children, that God will bring us to future glory, and that God brings all things together to work for our good. So it's in that context that he's then saying, what shall we say in response to these things? And I want to suggest that there are three things, and I'm going to make it easy for you to remember, three things that we need Uh, to live in God, or three things that actually hinder us from living in God's power, and therefore that we need to address. So the first is we need to be free from fear, because God is for us, God favors us. So in that verse, the, the verse 32, sorry, I've just turned over my Bible passage. In verse 32, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, Who can be against us? Or what can be against us? And then he goes on and says, no one, nothing. That's what this passage is about. And I want to suggest, if God is for us, and nothing is against us, no one is against us, then we can be free of fear. 
The Greek word for if is not a term of uncertainty. It is absolute certainty. If God is working on our behalf, and he most surely is, then who can possibly succeed in opposing us? He then goes on and says, in the next verse, verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Paul is actually arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's saying if God has done the big thing by delivering up Jesus to the cross for death and resurrection on our behalf to ensure our salvation, then he's going to do the small thing of giving us all that we need to live for him. For God to give up Jesus to death and then to abandon us would be like a wealthy man buying a very expensive car and then leaving it on the side of the road not filled with petrol and never driving it. That's just not going to happen. Jesus has died. We can have the Holy Spirit because actually we need the Holy Spirit just as a car needs petrol. And God gives the, gives the Holy Spirit to us as and when we ask and as we need, just as that wealthy man will fill his car with petrol. And that's the idea behind Paul's argument here. But it's not all things material. He's not saying, I'm going to give you Rolls Royces and mansions and expensive uh, jewellery and elaborate wardrobes and things like that. It's not about our wants, it's about our needs and specifically about what we need to live for him. So what he is saying, if God is for us, no one can stand against us. And if God gave Jesus, then he's going to give us everything we need to live for him. And as a result, I want to suggest that we need to live free from fear. We can live in God's power when we are free from fear. But the problem is, most of us, and if I did a show of hands and I'd be the first to raise my hand, most of us live lives that are full of fear. It's utterly terrifying to stand in front of you, Lord, I can say that now. I've had to overcome fear to come up here. We're fearful of other people. We we wonder whether we're going to be accepted and what they think of us. We're fearful about sharing our faith. We're fearful about praying for someone who needs healing because we wonder if they're going to react badly. We wonder if our job might be at risk. We're fearful about the future because it might be uncertain and unsure. We're fearful about our jobs and our income and whether or not we're going to have enough to provide for our families. We're fearful about our health and whether someone we know and love might get sick. There are so many kind of fears that haunt us. And actually, God is saying, if you're living a life of fear, you are not living in my power. And I want you to be free from fear so that you can live in my power. And I'm going to share two examples of where I've seen this happen. One, again, is from this very recent trip to Bolivia. Um, I was making a film with a, a, a colleague, and we were interviewing a group of young people. And we were interviewing this lady called Carminia. She was only probably maybe 19 or 20. And we said to her, what's your hope for the future? And she said, I have no hope for the future because I've been told I've got a heart condition and that I could drop down dead any moment. She said, I'm really fearful about the future. And so we prayed for her. We just said, in the name of Jesus, we pray healing over your heart. And we pray that this condition would go, that you would know God's love afresh and you would have fresh hope for the future. And she just burst into tears. And every day that week when we saw her, while we were there, she kept saying, I feel so much better. I feel so much lighter. I feel like I have hope. It's that kind of freedom from the mentality of fear that the doctors have proclaimed this over her. And she said, I'm not going to live by that anymore. And another example would be when I moved to Oxford, I had been living previously 
in a different part of the country where I'd been in a salaried role, and God was saying very clearly to me to come and move here to work for a charity that at that time didn't pay their staff, and I was going to have to go self-funded. And I remember feeling like, oh my goodness, can I do this? Are you going to provide for my needs? Am I going to have enough to live on? And I was kind of in some ways overwhelmed a bit by a fear of lack. And God said, Joe, if you go, I will honor you. If you go, I will bless you. And if you go, I will provide for you. You don't have anything to fear. And I can testify throughout the entire time I worked for that organization, I had more than enough to meet for my needs. And it says in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, this was a verse that was given to me at my baptism. So I love this verse. God has not given us a spirit of fear. He has given us a spirit of power, of love, and of sound mind. God has not given us a spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit of power, of love, and of sound mind. If God is for us, and if God favors us, there's no opposition. Who or what can stand against us? Who or what can we fear? The answer is nothing. The answer is no one. So that's my first point. We can live in God's power when we live free from fear because God is for us. God favors us. The second point is that we can also live in God's power when we're free from guilt because God forgives us and there's no condemnation. So if you look on in the next verse, verse 33, Paul says, or he asks this question, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And this is almost a question that is an emphatic denial. He's asking it, but he knows the answer. He's saying, who would dare bring any charge against those who are Christians and who believe in the Lord Jesus? And the answer is nobody. And this theme of the idea of any charge comes from a courtroom setting. Paul is imagining a scenario where you're in a court and you're before a judge. And he's saying, if you are a Christian, then God has chosen you. And no one can charge you with the wrongdoing and the sin that you have committed and that you will commit. And that's because it's God who justifies And then he goes on and asks, who then is he who can condemn? Who's the one who would condemn? This concept of justifying is actually quite hard. Someone earlier was talking about um, the, the idea that God is a holy God. It's something we don't often talk about. God is a holy God. He loves us, but he absolutely detests our sin. And when we sin, it creates a blockage between us and God. And if we want to get back in right relationship with God, that blockage has to be removed. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, God's people would have to bring a blemish-free animal to sacrifice to God in order to get that blockage removed. And then God sent Jesus. He was without sin. He was completely perfect. And his sacrifice has been once for all people for all time. And that means that if we're Christians, Jesus' death and resurrection will permanently remove that blockage if we confess our sin. And as a result, if anyone dares to bring a charge against us, God will acquit us. And that's the essence of justification. It's just as if I'd never sinned because of what Jesus achieved on the cross. So then he says, who then is the one who condemns? And this is an echo of the very beginning of Romans 8 where he says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
And Paul lists in that verse four things. He says, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. And that's like a statement of our faith. He's saying Christ Jesus died, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. He died, he was raised to life, he's at the right hand of God and he's interceding for us. And that essence of the word interceding is again a sense from the courtroom scenario. He's talking about a defense lawyer who speaks out on behalf of their client in front of a judge. He's basically saying, you can count on Jesus Christ to be your defense lawyer in a courtroom scenario. And he will speak on your behalf and he will win your case. And whatever sin or wrongdoing you have done, you will be acquitted because Jesus is your lawyer. Does that make sense? There is no condemnation because God forgives us. But... The problem is, a lot of us are living with guilt. And I want to suggest we can live in God's power when we're free from guilt. When we're free from condemnation. When we actually allow God to forgive us. The problem is we're guilty, or we feel guilty, because we're wearing a mask of respectability. Because we think if someone actually sees our sin, they won't like us. And that we feel that that's the same with God. And he says, take down your mask, be real with me. And we feel guilty because maybe we've got an ongoing struggle with a secret sin that nobody knows anything about. I read this morning that one in every three churchgoers has a problem with pornography. That is a secret sin that needs to be outed and dealt with, if that's you. We feel guilty because we know we've let people down, we've let ourselves down, we've let God down because of our sin. We've done things that have hurt other people, we've said things that have hurt other people. And we feel guilty because sometimes we've committed sins years ago and the enemy has got a little hole that keeps bringing stuff up to haunt us. And God says, I've dealt with it. And the repercussion is we're not living in God's power because we're living lives where we're feeling guilty and condemned and we're condemning ourselves. And God says, get rid of that guilt. Come to me, get rid of that guilt. There is no condemnation if you confess your sin. And again, I'm going to share two stories. One was from a lady that I prayed with last year, last summer, and she, she basically said she had a really, really bad migraine, and there had been a word of knowledge, it was a Christian meeting, there had been a word of knowledge that there were people there with migraines that needed to be dealt with, and uh, I happened to be the one behind her, so I said, okay, I'll pray for you, <laughs> and she said, actually, I've never thought of this before, because I said to her, where, where do you think it came in, when do you think it started, and she said, I think I've inherited it from my mother, in fact, my relationship with my mother has been appalling. And I said, can you forgive your mother? And she said, I'm not sure. I said, Lord, help her forgive her mother. She then forgave her mother, and then she was able to confess any resentment she'd had against her mom before the Lord, and I was her witness. And then I said, in the name of Jesus, I pray that this migraine would go. And I just prayed over her for the migraine to go. And uh, she shut her eyes and and was crying. And about two or three minutes later, she opened her eyes and she went, I can see. She said, I can see, I can see. And I said, but I didn't pray for your eyesight. I prayed for your migraine. (laughs) And having never had a migraine, I didn't realize that when you get a migraine, it affects your vision and you get kind of blurry double vision. And she'd been experiencing that in this meeting. And she said, I can completely see. And uh, I actually would like to think that it was the trigger was her forgiving someone else and then God forgiving her and then bringing the healing. And that is what Steve talked about last week. And many of us, I know, responded. And uh, the challenge was this week, if there was anyone we needed to forgive, including ourselves, to forgive. 
So I'm continuing that theme now. If there's anyone you need to forgive, then I would encourage you to forgive them and then to ask God for your own forgiveness so that you can be free from guilt. So that's my second point. If we confess our sin, God forgives us. If God forgives us, there is no condemnation. No one can bring a charge against you. No one can accuse you. There's no reason to be holding on to guilt. And then the third point is that we can live in God's power, not just when we're free from fear, not just when we're free from guilt, but also when we're freely loved, because God fathers us. So if you move on in the passage, verse 35, Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is probably the most critical question a Christian would ever want to ask. Who can separate me, you, us from the love of Christ? And the answer, of course, is nobody. Nothing. And three times in this passage, Paul talks about God's love. He says God has loved us, God is loving us, and God will love us. And he bookends the section of the passage with the word separate. Nothing can separate you from God's love. He's absolutely emphatic. And he goes through and then lists umpteen things. And when I was looking up in the commentaries, the suggestion was that these difficulties he then describes are things that Paul himself has gone through. He says, shall trouble, shall hardship, shall persecution, shall famine, nakedness, danger, sword. It's a pretty comprehensive list. None of those things, those deprivations, insecurities, nothing can separate you from God's love. They might not your faith. They might cause you to question. It's not to say that suffering isn't going to happen. But it's to say when it does happen, you will not be separated from God's love. Nothing can separate you. He says, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is in verse 37. Through Christ, we're not just victorious, but we're overwhelmingly conquerors. And he then goes on and pulls out all the stops. Absolutely. He even switches to the first person and he says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. He's absolutely staking his life on what he considers to be unchanging certainties and realities. Neither death nor life, our very existence, whether we're alive or whether we're dead, nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither angels nor demons nor any powers, so even the unseen spiritual world, which we need to be aware of with Halloween tomorrow, nothing, good or bad, can separate us from God's love. Neither the present nor the future, time, which is the very essence of our universe, whether it's to do with the here and now or the future, nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither height nor depth, so our location, whether we go to the furthest height or the furthest depth, nothing can separate us from God's love. And then he says, or anything else in all creation. It's like a throwaway end of the sentence, just to cover, you know, a catch-all, just in case he missed anything out. So he's being as comprehensive as possible. He's basically saying every conceivable thing, 
And all theological bases I'm trying to cover. I'm trying to make this message as clear as possible. Nothing can separate you from God's love. You are more than a conqueror through him who loves you. And when we trust in Christ for our salvation, by his grace, we get adopted into his family. Now, earlier in the chapter in Romans 8, I didn't read it, but Paul talks about that we are adopted as children of God, and we can then cry out to him, Abba, Father. And that's like the word daddy or papa. It's like a really intimate word to use. And I'm really aware that when I talk about the fact that God fathers us, that can, for some some of us, can conjure up really, really painful associations. And I just want to say that if that's the case, if your earthly father has let you down and that's actually affecting your ability to see God as a father in heaven, then you need to get that sorted. Because actually, God knows whether your dad in real life let you down. He knows whether or not he was actually present for you. And he wants to say, I will step in and I will be your dad. And there's no higher status than to be adopted into God's family. Because if you are adopted in, you are then an heir with Jesus, which means you are inheriting all the good things God has in store. There's no separation from God's love when he fathers us. So I want to suggest that we can live in God's power, not just when we're free from fear, not just when we're free from guilt, but also when we're freely loved. And the problem is that many of us don't live like this. We don't live our lives in God's power. We live our lives separated in some way from God's love. And he can't give us his power in the way he wants to. And maybe some of us feel unloved and unlovable. Maybe because we don't allow people to get to know who we really are. Or maybe because some of us have been rejected. Or maybe because we don't feel we can live up to other people's expectations of us. And actually, the repercussion then is that you're not living in God's power. You're living separate from God's love and from his power. And some of you might be struggling with that feeling of being unloved and unlovable. And there was a word shared, I I don't know the name of the man who shared it, I'm sorry, about a picture of a daffodil on a spring day. God doesn't hibernate. He still kind of wants things to blossom. And he still wants to love you and allow that to happen. And Dan also said that... um, in the prophetic words earlier, that God's love isn't just a safety net, but it's a rope ladder, and he's drawing us up it. He's saying, come closer to me, come in more intimately with me. And I want to, again, to share two stories of where I've seen this happen. One is quite recently, Nick and Lou had a Muslim man staying with them, and Nick asked if I would pray with him, and I just had this overwhelming sense as I prayed for him God loves him as a father loves his son, which for a Muslim is a really, really hard thing to hear because I don't believe that God had a son. And I just remember praying over him and he just had tears streaming down his face because he suddenly realized God loved him as a father. And he was a son, an adopted son in God's family because he was a Muslim background believer who had become a Christian. And I also want to give an example from my own family where, um, you know, circumstances could dictate that we would be separated from God's love. And actually, no trouble, no hardship could happen. And those of you who know my brother who comes here will know that a decade ago, it was exactly a decade ago, um, they were involved in a very, very serious car accident. I was on holiday in France at the time, and I got a call from my dad in tears saying, get home as soon as you get this message. We don't know who's going to make it through the night. And uh, came back, 
And basically for a month, my brother was unconscious in intensive care. A driver coming in the opposite direction had hit them head on on their side of the road, done a full 360 degree turn and the engine of the other car had ended up on the far side of the road. And by God's miraculous grace, they both pulled through. There was an air ambulance that went. And it was such a hard month. Honestly, we didn't know if he was going to make it. There were nights when I can think of three occasions when they said, we don't think he's going to make it through the night. And we were like, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. And our family just felt completely surrounded by God's love. Completely surrounded by God's love and God's family caring for us. No circumstance, however awful, can separate you from God's love. Nothing. And in 1 John 3 verse 1, Paul, or John says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. That idea of lavishness. You know, think of an ice cream sundae with like masses of scoops of ice cream covered in sauce and sprinkles and flakes. That's lavish. That's the kind of love. I'm not saying God's going to give you ice cream, but that kind of idea that actually God lavishes his love on us. And he says, I call you children of God. You are children of God. And I want to suggest if you come to God humble and childlike and you say, God, I just need a fresh touch of your love then he will reassure you and reaffirm to you that nothing and no one can separate you from his love. Nothing. Even if your circumstances at the moment feel you to cause you to question, does he really love me? The answer is he does. Don't believe, if you're holding on to the lie that you're unlovable or you're unloved, don't believe that lie. Rod talked earlier about not believing the lies of the devil. That verse in John 10.10 where Jesus says, I came to bring life And life in abundance also says that Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy. Don't have anything to do with his lies. They're lies. So just to summarize, if we want to live in God's power so that we can have abundant life, we need to be free from fear, remembering that God is for us and he favors us. We need to be free from guilt because God forgives us. There's no condemnation. And we need to be freely loved or aware that God freely loves us because he fathers us. So I want to ask, as we sort of draw in to a close, are you living in God's power? And if you're not, do you want to be living in God's power? Are you like a phone where the battery is pretty near dead? And actually, you need to reconnect that charger in and stay as long as you need connected into the socket that is God's power to get all the power you need. Are you willing to come on a really regular basis to the Lord to get topped up so that when he says, I need to use you to speak to this person, you're coming alongside today, you're ready? Because actually, that's what he wants to do. And I want to ask... Just a minute, there's a verse here that I've put up. Oops. Is it going to work? Can we have the last slide? Yes. So this verse from Ephesians that says, this is Paul praying. He says, I pray that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So the essence is, God wants to strengthen you with power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being. Do you follow that? He wants to strengthen you with his power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being. So for some of us, it might simply be about saying, I need more of the Holy Spirit. Come and just fill me up again. Like your phone being put into the socket. 
So do you want to live in God's power? Do you need to be free from fear? Do you need to be free from guilt? Do you actually need just a fresh touch of God's love? Do you need a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit so that you can actually access God's power? I want to suggest that if you answer yes to any of those questions, that in a moment you come forward and there'll be people that you can pray with. And we're going to have a song playing, a Bethel song, as that happens. And the words in that song are taken straight from Romans 8. It's a declaration. It says, I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. And I just want to pray. And when I finish praying and I sit down, then please feel free to come. So let's close our eyes. Father God, I want to thank you that you're our Heavenly Father. I want to thank you for your love, that you love and accept us unconditionally. I want to thank you that you are for us, that nothing can come against us, so we've got nothing to fear. I want to thank you that you forgive us, so no charge can be brought against us, so we don't need to feel guilty or condemned. I want to thank you that nothing, nobody, no circumstance can separate us from your love. And I want to thank you that you send the Holy Spirit to help us pray, to strengthen us in our inner being with your power. And Father God, I just want to ask that you would send your Holy Spirit and that if there are people here that you want to minister to that need to hear you afresh, that you would come and meet with them individually and meet with us collectively. I just ask that in Jesus' name.